Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins. And today I'm here with John Mark Homer. And uh, he has a new book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. You guys haven't heard me talk about a book. You've heard me talk about books every podcast, let's, let's be honest. But you haven't talk, heard me talk about a new book um, since last year. So uh, I do want to talk a little bit about this book because it's close to heart. And for those who have listened to the podcast for a long, long time, you know that I have a really, really difficult time uh, slowing down or stopping. And we've actually, John Mark, we've actually had like real legit psychologists come on here and try to try to help me. Nobody, nobody can yet. <laughs> it's, it's really, really sad, but maybe, maybe you can. Uh, so the person you hear uh, laughing on the other end is John Mark Comer and a little bit about him. Uh, wanted you to know he is a practitioner. And I think that's really important that you are uh, a pastor of um Bridgetown Church, and that is in Portland, Oregon. That is not an easy place to do church. So thank you for doing church in hard places. Um, yeah. Increasingly, church in hard places is pretty much everywhere we go, but we do know um, mm, that that's a, a, a special culture. Um, and then speaking of culture, I would say uh, people need to also check out This Cultural Moment, which is a podcast that you do with, uh, with Mark Sayers. And uh, I, right before the podcast started, I, I was talking about his book, Facing Leviathan, and just what an amazing work it was. So I uh, would really encourage people to check that out as well. Is there anything else you would like to say about yourself before we get started? No, that sounds great. Just happy <laughs> to be along. All right. Uh, you can find out more about uh, John Mark if he does a good job on the podcast at johnmarkcomer.com. That's J-O-H-N Mark Comer. All right. Uh, let's get started. Uh, the uh, Just first of all, uh, this is a great book. Uh, I commented on it that it is a hardback, which I appreciate. Fine debossing. Uh, but the elimination of hurry, you know, we've uh, hopefully people listening to podcasts have read things like essentialism. Um, how is how is this different than the message that somebody may have heard before. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it, it, maybe they haven't, maybe it's not, but I think it's from the perspective of, you know, the way of Jesus. So there's a lot of chatter right now about mindfulness and minimalism or McCown's essentialism is an excellent read or deep work by Cal Newport and efficiency and all of that stuff. And it's fantastic. And there's a bunch of that in the book. But um, very little tie over between kind of that body of work and spirituality, spiritual formation, contemplative practices, prayer and spiritual formation, really like what all of the hurry and digital distraction and overload is doing, not just to our like work productivity and not even just to our emotional health, though that's a key facet, but really to our, our spiritual life, to our capacity to receive and and give love from and to God and from and to others. And so it's really an exploration of kind of an alternative way of life, um, not so much from the perspective of work productivity or minimalism, mindfulness, or email hacks, but more from the perspective of the way of Jesus and prayer and ancient practices, and really um, the question about, you know, who are we becoming? That's good, that's good. 
So what were some of the biggest things that you learned in bringing this book to life? Oh, gosh, man, I, I, that's, that's hard to answer that one thing. I did a ton of research for it. I mean, a lot was about the history of speed, like doing some just like digging around kind of pace of life in Western culture and um, where it comes from. And it's obviously very tied to technology and also very tied to secularism and actually like much deeper issues about worldview and the Western view of time and the meaning of life or the lack of meaning of life and kind of our shift from, you know, the Korean German philosopher Byung Chul Han says, calls it the shift from a disciplinary society that's governed by no to an achievement society that's governed by yes, the byproduct of which is just chronic exhaustion and anxiety. So a, a lot of research around that was really interesting, all the tie in between like the secular worldview itself and burnout, exhaustion, fatigue, distraction. And then, of course, like just learning about the dark underbelly of Silicon Valley and uh, the you know attention economy and the way not just social media, but so much of the digital age in general has been intentionally engineered for distraction and addiction in order to monotonize um, our attention and even like shape and sculpt our behavior and um, the many implications that it has not just on politics or economics, which we hear a little bit about in the news, but on spirituality and ethical kind of vision and all that kind of stuff. It is fascinating um, to look at from a, a technology and data um, side of things. So I'm, I'm a data guy and probably this time last year, I was like, oh, I got to figure out TikTok. I got to break it. I got to figure out what algorithm is there. How do people exploit it? Uh, I had it on my phone for about three months. And um, and I I think that it is the most addictive thing because I'm, I don't watch TV. I don't watch movies. I'm like one of the most boring people ever. Um, and, you know, you can watch Dude Perfect on, on YouTube or you can watch, you know, some of these other crazy things uh, there. But... That format was insane. And then going back and looking at the research that goes into that and continues to go into that, as well as gaming theory, um, is just absolutely fascinating. Um, okay, so I, I really, uh, I probably will bring the book back in when we get to some uh, more of the personal side of your leadership. Um but I do want to get into uh, the five questions. And so, you know, we talked about what you learned in making this book, but who are you currently learning from? You know, I'm learning a lot less from one person in particular, but just from kind of the field of psychology. I've been basically attempting to give myself an ad hoc kind of graduate level degree in psychology, just under, which is all very new to me. It's not a part of my Bible college or seminary experience was most definitely not a part of the church tradition I came up in where psychology was right up there with like, you know, secular music and Satanism. And, um, <laughs> but I, I've really come to the conviction that in the enlightenment, you know, the, there were all sorts of shifts in knowledge and what political philosophers have called the disappearance of moral knowledge. And it's really fascinating when it comes to the life of the soul kind of Bible and theology and spirituality were left in the domain of the pastor or the priest, but kind of more of the soul and healing and relationships and self-awareness 
were put into the realm of the psychologist, which is tragic because most of it was from a very secular worldview. Most of the, the great kind of, you know, schools of psychology, the great founders were all like off of their rocker. Some of them were sexually perverse. You know, Carl Jung's eating his own poop in the forest for three years. You know, Freud is Freud. And so they're very secular. And then, you know, most recent stuff is from kind of a evolutionary Darwinian perspective. But what's tragic is, you know, psychology is from the Greek word psuche, which is the word used in the New Testament for soul. And it's really about the, the growth and the healing and the expansion of the soul. And so if you read uh, particularly a lot of the mystics, but if you read even the church fathers and mothers prior to the enlightenment, they sound to me as much like psychologists, Christian psychologists, as they do like theologians. So I think I've been really just trying to learn a lot about um, kind of the life of the soul, things like, you know, addiction and compulsion and attachment disorders and um, all, all sorts of stuff around that differential psychology and personality theories and whether or not those are remotely even helpful. And so I think a lot of that has, has been really my interest because I think the driving question for me, I'm more on the teacher pastor side of the, the spectrum, a little bit less of the evangelist apostle kind of side. And for me, I'm really interested in uh, the process of spiritual formation. Like how is it that we actually change and grow and mature? I'm really interested in kind of, um, what we've lost in the West and what we have to learn from the Eastern Orthodox tradition and their view of salvation as kind of the healing of the soul as it makes its way back to union with God. And I think there's there's really a view of salvation and even of the atonement that we've lost a bit in the West, at least since the Reformation, that we have, a, and it's, it's a both and and not an either or, but that we have a lot to learn from. So I think I'm, I'm just really interested in learning. So I'm, I'm reading a lot a lot from that perspective right now. How do you think that uh, matches up with, you know, the more modern conversation that we're having now about, um, well, political truth, objective truth, uh, biblical truth, personal truth? Um, you know, it seems like every other day I'm hearing about a different kind of truth. Yes, for sure. <laughs> I, I think there's a huge tie in, you know, one of my favorite um, writers and teachers and thinkers the last few years, Patrick Deneen. Are you familiar with his work at all from Notre Dame? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And Why Liberalism Failed is his kind of go-to book. Um, you can listen to him online and he's too smart for his own good. But I think what he and, you know, Willard's kind of last academic work was published recently posthumously. It's called The Disappearance of Moral Knowledge. And I think learning more about kind of, again, that split in the Enlightenment where morality or if you prefer ethics and theology or if you prefer spirituality were kind of moved out of the realm of knowledge, meaning things that can be known and even learned about and even tested and improved upon our knowledge of and moved over into the domain of opinion or belief, by which most people meant either opinion or emotion and feelings or, or just wishful thinking or antagonistic right. because we think delusion. And so, you know, now we live in a world where you can know chemistry and biology and math, but you can't know a sex ethic or know, you know, the right way to do a marriage or know God. And that's a, that's a gross, you know, that's, that's cheating. I think that as far as epistemology goes, like 
who gets to decide what is knowledge and what is the criteria for knowledge and what's the method by which right. we know whether or not something is knowledge. And so, you know, obviously central to the writers of the Bible is, you know, what they would call hokma, which is the Hebrew word that we translate as wisdom. But I don't think most Westerners realize hokma in the wisdom literature and in the Old Testament. It's not just like street smarts. It's this idea of moral knowledge that that there are truths about in the same way that there are natural laws to the universe like gravity or the laws of thermodynamics. There are moral laws to the universe and relational laws to the universe and spiritual laws. What Paul's getting at with is like, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you also reap. That's not some hellfire and brimstone statement of like God will punish you. I don't think that's a statement of moral knowledge. Like if you live against the grain, what's H.H. Farmer, the British philosopher said, if you live against the grain of the universe, you'll get splinters. Meaning if you, if you live in dissonance with the way God, the creator set the creation up to function and thrive, then you reap the consequences often in your own body or in your own soul and in our society. So I, I think there's a ton of tie over here. And, um, you know, I'm very orthodox and historic in my theology, but I, I think there is a sense at which once you discover truth with a capital T or hokma um, and wisdom, whether you discover whatever perspective you discover it from, I think you're tapping into really God's design and intention in the universe. And I, I think it is an idea that we've tragically lost in a kind of post-Foucault French modernity kind of truth as a form of oppression kind of nonsense. It's the exact opposite of what Jesus said. You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. So how does this affect, you know, uh, how does this affect your, your preaching from week to week? Because, you know, I, I still interact with a ton of young leaders um, and I was a philosophy. Undergrad, oh, so I love it. Great. And, stuff. Um, and so, and not at a, not, I was at a state school, so it was uh, not easy. But the, the, the kicker that I find is really interesting is I've actually heard uh, people say, that's not my truth. Yes. <laughs> From a personal truth standpoint. Yeah, I mean, which doesn't even pass like how logic does that, 101. <laughs> that's not, that's your truth. That's not my truth. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah, once you put the pronoun, you know, my or your in front of the noun <laughs> truth, you no longer are in the Webster's Dictionary. Right. So, you know, for a lot of our, our listeners, they're like, okay, this, this sounds like a, a really uh, interesting conversation over coffee, but how does this affect, you know, the way that I, that I preach or the way that I reach um, people that are of that mindset? Yeah, well, I, all I can tell you is, you know, my experience so far. I mean, first off, in my experience, nobody actually believes that. And all you have to do is impinge on their truth for them to, you know, to realize, I mean, take an extreme example, like, you know, murder or theft. Like if I were to just steal somebody's car keys right. and they were say, what are you doing? Well, it's just, just my truth that all cars belong to me. You know, <laughs> nobody actually believes that nobody, if you follow the logic through what, you know, there's, there's some gray areas, but you know, most of ethics we still agree upon as far as sexual assault or theft or murder or violence, you know? And so, and, and because, you know, the my truth kind of mentality, it doesn't have a coherent and a logical basis other than personal intuition and opinion. It's therefore almost impossible to defend. Like, you know, like from an ethical perspective, it's really hard for a secular person to defend even some basic moral things. Like why is sexual assault wrong? And um, other than appealing to like, you know, evolutionary psychology or something like that. So 
I think what I've discovered in my teaching, um, you know, I do this podcast with Mark Sayers, who's a cultural commentator. He's also a pastor, but more known for his work on culture. And I started it really just because I'd read his books and they had transformed my preaching and teaching and my pastoral leadership. And I just wanted to get his ideas. Honestly, it was kind of selfish. I just wanted to get his ideas deeper into my kind of neural pathways and into my mind and my memory. And, you know, I remember chatting with him early on and he, he, he's a few years older than me and he was an early adopter in the kind of missional church movement and found that a lot of his peers started out and the goal was kind of to deconstruct Western church, the kind of attractional Sunday centric personality driven right. things. But what they ended up doing was actually deconstructing church in general, the Bible, orthodoxy, and then by the end of Christian faith. And if you, you know, it's the sad truth is many of the early founders of the quote missional movement, not only don't lead churches anymore, they aren't even followers of Jesus anymore. And so he began to realize the fallout of that deconstructionism was not like a, a reconstructionism of something better, a healthier kind of truer form of church. For most people, it was nothing at all, post-church, post-Christian. So I remember he said, you know, I had the, he had this epiphany moment where he was at a friend of ours church in New York, Trinity Grace, and he just was in this middle of this very kind of normal in the sense of it wasn't like the most innovative thing ever, but it was just healthy, flourishing, thriving church that was built around Jesus and life in the spirit. And he felt like the spirit just said, you know, just do this. Just you don't have to reinvent church. And then he thought, what if I were to take all of my intelligence and reading and learning and emotional energy and aim it not at deconstructing church or deconstructing orthodoxy, but at deconstructing secular culture and the secular narrative? And so that's what he's done kind of ever since. And it's really transformed the way that I teach. You know, Philip Reef, the sociologist um, who is a pain in the butt to read, but is over the top important, to, I think, to get our head around the cultural moment we're in. He said the best way to critique secular culture is to take what he called a biopsy of it, meaning you just take a little facet of it, cut it out, and then just hold it up to the light. And, you know, Tim Keller, of course, is the preacher par excellence of this. And and one of the great things about Keller is he's not, he doesn't come off angry or judgmental. He just comes off honest and a little professorial and blunt, but open. And so you just take an issue like, you know, like in my city, a huge one right now is gender is a social construct. It's different from biological sex, you know, gender is fluid. It's based on a psychological inner dynamic. So you, you can just take that and you don't need to get all angry or up in arms or offensive or insensitive. Just kind of like cut that out, hold it up to the light, show where that comes from, some, show some of the political philosophical roots that are behind it, some of the world, some of the assumptions that are built into it, some of the enlightenment kind of master of nature thing built into it. And just kind of hold it up to the light and then let people look at it and let people think about it. And so in my exposure, in my experience, you have to kind of expose secular narratives. You have to kind of exegete the cultural narrative as much as you exegete the biblical narrative and point people to kind of Jesus and his gospel. And when you kind of can hold those two things side by side, here's what the culture is kind of saying. And here, which is it's not monolithic, but here's kind of what we hear. And then hold that up against what Jesus and the writers of the Bible are saying. I, I, in my experience, there is a profound, like, kind of moment of illumination that comes for myself and for many other people. So I guess that's kind of my answer is the experience of attempting to kind of biopsy culture and exegete it a little bit, 
not that I want to become like, you know, a New York Times op-ed commentator person, but as part of my preaching and my teaching and my leadership. I love that. Um, just because, you know, uh, so with Lifeway Leadership means uh, that we interact with a lot of pastors and that we provide training for a lot of pastors and resources for a lot right. of pastors. And for a lot of for a lot of them, it is, hey, how do I speak to this issue happening in my local context? It is a cultural thing um, that they think they can push off for years and then until it happens and then, you know. Then my DMs on Twitter uh, and my cell phone start to hit. Um, and I'm by no means a, an expert. I just uh, am lucky enough to uh, interact with a, a lot of guys like you that have um, specialties in different fields. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I do love the idea of cultural exegesis as being uh, a significant part of what a what a You know, and if you look at I was I was chatting recently um, to my uh, professor from seminary who's head of the theology department and has been kind of a mentor. And and I was just discussing like, you know, my, my preaching and teaching has changed over the last few years and I've been, you know, a little at, at disease, like in my strengths. All I used to just exegete the Bible. Like that's the church tradition that I came up in. And, um, I've kind of, I, then I added to that work around spiritual formation and realizing that just like knowing the exegesis of a text is different than actually becoming the kind of person with the capacity to do what the text says. And so that brought me into spiritual formation and psychology. But then I began to realize that kind of, you know, more and more people don't even buy, don't even come to text scripture with a set of assumptions, such as scripture is authoritative and mental maps to trust and live by. So I have to actually start farther back and exegete the culture, biopsy the culture a little bit, give a little cultural commentary. And so now I think about a sermon through kind of a Venn diagram in three parts of biblical theology, spiritual formation, and cultural commentary. And in every sermon, I'm trying to do all three of those things, like exegete Bible, give some psychological practical steps to move forward to the, become the kind of people who have the capacity to obey whatever it is we just read and then give some cultural stuff about, you know, why this might sound wonky or weird to be hard for us. But I was asking my professor, like, am I, am I missing the point? Like, am I, am I, am I, am I getting off, you know, and I don't realize it. Like, do you know when you're getting off? I don't know. And, you know, he used the analogy of like the old Testament prophets and how, you know, much of what in his paradigm, Amos or Micah or Isaiah is doing is actually cultural commentary. They're actually like riffing on kind of the current state of culture and the host culture that was Israel, which at the time was, you know, pretty much always apostate. And then calling them back to Torah, calling them back to scripture and, and what it says. And that, and he was saying that's kind of the role of a pastor right now, a preacher is kind of that prophetic role to kind of like, point out the host culture and show where it's intention or at odds with scripture and with kind of, you know, for us, it wouldn't be Torah. It would be Jesus and his teachings in the New Testament. On this podcast, we equip our listeners with the absolute best resources to help their churches thrive. So if you're looking at launching a thriving church in a rented venue or perhaps a new one that you own, I would encourage you to check out the team at Portable Church. Portable Church Industries equips churches meeting in alternative venues with total solutions so that you can launch strong, be reproductive, and thrive in your community. 
For over 25 years, they've partnered with church planters and multi-site leaders, mastering creative, intelligent, and effective portable church solutions so that you and your team can stay focused on the thing that really matters, and that's building disciples. If you want to see what this looks like, visit portablechurch.com slash Let's let's shift gears uh, a little bit here. What's the main point of emphasis with your leadership team right now? It could be your your you know team at church, staff, and volunteers, or or it could be uh, you. But what what's the main point? Mm. Of emphasis well, I think at a very team? practical level, we're working on a rule of life. So we're really convinced that whatever the future is for health and a church and a, and a post-Christian city like Portland and pretty much anywhere in the digital age with the phone and such is a pretty rigorous and pretty, um, pretty clear and conscious kind of rule of life, which is again, for Protestants is, is not even language. A lot of people are familiar with though. It is like intuitive. Everybody has a rule of life, whether they call it that or not, whether it's intentional or unintentional and conscious or subconscious, we all have kind of a, a structure or some kind of a schedule and set of practices that we live by a morning routine, a night routine, a weekend thing, a budget or lack thereof or whatever. So I think a lot of our conversations right now are a rule around a rule of life and what would it look like to create um, almost like a, an order in the same way that, you know, prior to the reformation church renewal was done through like you would, you would kind of create an order to call people back to a more rigorous rule of life and, call people back to the heart of God. And so it's the Franciscan order and the Jesuit order and the Carmelite order. And so I think we're exploring what with some of our other friends and churches, what would it look like to almost create like an order inside low church Protestantism, you know, where you have a rule of life and some daily things you live by and weekly things you live by and not just disciplines, but also some real commitments. But I think at a broader level, you know, that, that's kind of the practice at broader level is just kind of how do we live? And this is very much where I'm at. How do we live in, in the right balance and back and forth between, you know, you see it in Jesus lifestyle, that, you know, rhythm of retreat and return where you'd sneak away and pray and rest and sleep and be with close friends and hear from God and spend time in the quiet. And then he would re-engage and heal the sick and cast out demons and preach the gospel and stand up against spiritual oppression and political, you know, stuff. And how do we live in that tension? You know, the Catholics would call it the tension between contemplation and action. And I've been thinking a lot about the, the kind of mystic idea that, you know, the opposite of a contemplative life is an action. It's a reaction. It's, you know, where your whole life is just, it's reactive leadership. You just respond to the tyranny of the urgent, to that grumpy email, to this mm. person that's mad at you, to this fad or church trend or book that you just read rather than contemplative leadership, which doesn't mean you just sit around at a monastery and, you know, pray the Jesus prayer all day long. It means that you, like Jesus, have these spaces in your life to withdraw and listen and get quiet and discern a sense of direction from the spirit and in your own inner desire and heart. You know, Jesuit spirituality is really kind of the hallmark example par excellence of the tension because it's not a monastic movement it's an apostolic movement they don't start monasteries they start schools and missions and organizations and so i think that's really the question for us is like man how do we how do we live an unhurried life and focus on sabbath and soul care and formation without just kind of getting into introspective introverted kind of self-improvement for jesus 
And how do we still stay engaged right. in our city and in justice and in the gospel and the church and keep us healthy sense of urgency, which is very different from hurry, but it's and, and a sense of passion, which is very different from ambition. Um, so I think that's really, and, and how do we craft a rule to kind of have both? You're starting to win me over here. Here's why. Because, um, in my line of work, I get to sit down with all kinds of uh, well, churches and nonprofits mm-hmm. of shapes and from across the denominational spectrum too, huh? Oh yeah, yeah. And um, I'm walking them through frameworks of uh, it's basically getting them clarity to help them figure out where they are and shift from I would say being intuitive to intentional. Mm. Now, the interesting thing that you, a lot of times I'll run into people who will tell me, oh, this or that is organic or (laughs) um, part of the reason why I have trouble slowing down is, I mean, you know, if we rewind three minutes and and listen to what you were, what you were talking about, that, um, that this is not, it is not just intuitive. It is intentional. It is a shift from hurry to urgency, because I, I feel like a lot of the people who will tell me, um, you know, to slow down or to do what uh, they're, they're living Saturday night to Saturday night, yeah. um, you know, putting out fires uh, into well into Sunday morning and they get some rest on Monday, Tuesday and it all starts yes. over again. So, um, so. What I find fascinating is up until that point, I connected with you on a philosophy side, but I wouldn't have thought I connected with you at all on a practice side because I am a poster child XP, um, executive pastor yes. who I want to get it yes. done. <laughs> yes. Um, Praise God but for I love the way that you describe that. <laughs> <laughs> so organic is a dirty word for you that's just code for irresponsible <laughs> oh, just code I know for it. it work it's, it's okay it's not a criticism at all uh, <laughs> okay um, but that's fascinating because I've never I've never heard it uh, quite well you know the interesting the interesting right, about I, hurry right now and burnout as well is it's coming for everybody so it used to just be for like the kind of type A super driver, you know, executive pastor of a mega church, Wall Street trader, emergency room physician, that super kind of type A person. But now because of the digital age, because of technology, because of video games and distraction, there are all sorts of type B people who work 30 hours a week and live in mom's basement who are still way over busy, hurried and stressed out because all there's no such thing as like downtime anymore. And so that's where like the older organic things, and of course there's a place for that. Like I'm super high J on the Myers-Briggs. We'd actually probably get along quite well. So I need to like learn to be more relaxed and spontaneous and go with the- Are you an ENTJ or an INTJ? Well, yeah, that's, that's prescient of you. Well done. Yes, I am an INTJ. Um, what about you? <laughs> we would get along. What about you? Uh, I'm an ENTPJ, just depends uh, on the day. There you got it, yeah. But um, I- Everybody who listens to the podcast knows that um, I'm I'm kind of obsessed with the INTJs. Uh, like most of my team is INTJs. I, okay, well, let me finish my thought, a, and then you have to weakness. explain your thought. So very end of my thought okay. is just because Silicon Valley in particular and, you know, all and Hollywood as well 
has and and really you know marketing materialism in general has in has created a, a world where the goal like some of the, the most powerful most influential technologies and companies in the world are attempting to distract you addict you and swallow your time i don't think that the older like i'll just go with the flow works anymore you you have to be conscious intentional deliberate because you're living in like a, a, when it comes to attention you're living in a war zone for your attention so I just think you have to be super, super ruthless. Um, hence my book. But back to your saying, okay, just out of purely selfish reasons, edit it out of the podcast if you want. Why are you obsessed with INTJs? Uh, well, okay. So uh, basically I love profiling and people that listen to the podcast know I've got Ian Cron coming up um, on the Enneagram, yeah. which will be a touchy subject for me because um, – I like the shadow side of Enneagram um, more than the rest of yes, it. And part I agree. Of it I hate how it's being used as a I've personality I've invested theory. so it's much time. I've invested so much time in Myers-Briggs, and I can do these parlor tricks, which people have heard me do on the podcast before, where if I spend a little bit of time with you, I'm profiling you pretty much the right. whole time anyway. And we'll be like, oh, you're a this or you're a that, and with pretty good accuracy, but most of that is because I want to help whoever that is, you know, figure out, um, what God is, how, how he's wired them and to put themselves in position to do the most damage for yeah. them, for real. So, uh, as far as me and my work is concerned, I just, uh, I have a very small team and so uh, dedicated INTJs are amazing. Um, you do have to put out fires on, on occasion yes. with some of them. Um, uh, one of our team values is uh, is Persistent Widow, which goes to the parable of the Persistent Widow. Oh, I was going to like, what, like, what is that? If, <laughs> if somebody, if somebody uh, wants to have a meeting with you in two weeks and it's a five-minute question, you go ambush them in their office and, uh, and you know, you know, just swing by. Yes. Hey, I got a question yes. for you. And then you cancel the meeting. <laughs> like it's just, it is, or if you don't respond or if you continue to push stuff off, it's yes. like, okay, we, we got know it. how this works. We're got good. it. Um, but it's just a high sense of responsibility <laughs> that usually comes with that. And sometimes that's really unhealthy. Um, so as a leader, you have to recognize that, um, that person, it doesn't take much, um, as far as, uh, correction or if you, you know, some people, um, need encouragement more than others and, and some require, a, a stronger interaction. Um, INTJs don't. And in fact, you know, you have to be really careful, um, about that. So mm -hmm. anyway, that's uh, that's all a bonus. Sorry, guys. Uh, I'm going to shift us into really practical questions. We're going to answer two Great. more questions, uh, and, and we're going to call it a day. All right. Um, I would say in the last five years, what behavior or habit has changed your leadership the most? In the last five years. Yeah, this is new, and I didn't send this to you. Yeah, let me, let me just think about that. Um, probably shifting my morning to where I have to read for an hour before I let myself touch my phone. 
um, which started five or six years ago. And that has had a profound effect. So I, I'm trying to, I, I've been just on an ongoing quest to basically kind of detangle my life from my phone. Um, the most recent is like text. I, you know, I got, got rid of email a bunch and went down to email once a day and then three days a week. And now I'm down to one day a week. And then now I'm on text messaging, text message bundling to where I, I try to just do my text messages twice a day. So it's, you know, 1230 in the afternoon, um, my time. And I haven't, I actually haven't looked at my phone yet today. Um, and I'll answer all of my text messages once, and then I'll come back to them right before dinner, answer all of them and then kind of put it away. And other than that, I'll just use it for like running 10 minutes late or if I need to check something. So, um, part of that has been crafting a morning routine where I I get up and part of that, I had a, a real good, like kind of morning prayer scripture routine. But now after prayer and scripture, I'll try to get at least an hour of reading in before I um, let myself touch my phone and just having that time to just think and it keeps stretching. And I have that luxury because of my job and my role to kind of craft my mornings as I am offline. You can't get a hold of me. My phone's not there. My email's not up. I'm doing deep work. If it's sermon prep or leadership work or Right. contemplative leadership, trying to discern what's next or decision-making and giving my best hours to kind of digital free morning space, learning leadership that, that has been pretty transformative, I think for me and our church. So two quick follow-up questions. One, was there some moment or something that happened that caused that shift um, I mean, no, it's a series of things. I mean, six or seven years ago, I had like a, a, a breakdown, emotional breakdown, not like a moral breakdown, but, um, but, uh, kind of, you know, yeah, classic kind of mega church pastor burnout, exhaustion, early midlife crisis. What am I doing with my life thing? Which is a bunch of what the book is built around. I don't need to retell that story um, or bore people with it. So that was kind of, yeah, six, seven years ago. Um, that was, that was like the kind of let's put everything back on the table and reset the metrics for success and change the trajectory. And I demoted myself and we moved and all this stuff. And so since then, I've been on a kind of five or six year journey, um, a bunch of which has been learning about spiritual formation and psychology and therapy in my own life. And then just really like experimenting with practices and slowing and how do I pay attention? And so, yeah, since then it's been more, um, that was the kind of big watershed moment. And since then it's just been a series of incremental shifts of trying to, I love, five years ago, I read Paul's line to the Thessalonians when I was teaching through Thessalonians. And he has that great line in chapter five, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. And um, that, I don't know, just something about that has just really come deep to my heart. And so I've I've set some of that ambition that used to be directed a little bit more at, you know, external success stuff about like, how do I live a quiet life in a world of noise and still a life that's productive? And the ironic thing is I actually think I'm more productive now than I've ever been as far as work Mm -hmm. output. Um, but I, I actually work right. less hours than I ever have. I, you know, I just, um, have gotten increasingly kind of ruthless for lack of a better word about, uh, kind of what I do and what I don't do in my time. And, and with that, I've, I've actually been really surprised about output has been, has been really interesting. All right. Second follow-up yes. question is, uh, are there any practical things that 
you know, like, how is it that you don't see your phone? Do you keep it in a drawer or separate? Room? Yeah, I read this study. Lock it I read this study once on, actually, I read a couple that just being in the same room as your phone has this pretty massive yes. neural, like one, one neuroscientist I read said it is the brain equivalent, just being in the same room of your phone as having the phone shout at your brain as loud as it can, pick me up, pick me up, pick me up, you know? So yeah, we, um, we do the Andy Crouch uses the language of parent your phone. I love that meaning put it to bed before you go to bed and don't let it wake up until after you've already done your morning routine. So yeah, at eight 30 at night, I put it away in our laundry room. We have a closet and that's where we plug in our electronic devices and I, it's there and I literally won't go get it until depending on the day, sometime between normally nine and 1230, depending on what my work day is the following day. Awesome. All right. Uh, I'm just going to go to our uh, last standard question, which is what would you tell your 20 year old self about? Preparing oh, it's fantastic. My 20 year old self was type a driven workaholic, anxious. And, um, I, I, oh gosh, to narrow it down to one is really hard, but I think I would talk to him about Sabbath, which my 20 year old self that did not even have a category for Sabbath. Because I think Sabbath, similar to morning prayer, it, it is a container. And if you can create space to actually slow down and be present to your soul and to God for a day of the week where like all of that kind of internal stuff that we're often running away from and distracting ourselves from, it will come up. And I think if you have that container, God can do so much stuff in your soul as far as the other things I would tell my 20 year old self about ego and ambition and anxiety and control and coercion, like all these things. I think a lot of that could come up in that safe space with God. So I would likely tell my 20 year old self to go discover the practice and joy and art and need of Sabbath. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you so much for yeah, being on thanks the podcast. For having me. I've really enjoyed our oh, conversation. Oh, it's so nice. Thank you for having me on, and thanks for what you do and all the, the good conversations you're bringing to the world. Excellent. Okay, so if, uh, if you've enjoyed this conversation, you can check out The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry uh, on Amazon, lifeway.com, wherever books are sold. And also, I would say you can check out the This Cultural Moment podcast um, with John Mark and Mark Sager. So uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, please hop on, on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review.